Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, well, good morning to you. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Uh, if you're new with us this morning, it looks like some of you might be because of the baptisms. We kind of just go through books of the Bible, and so we are, uh, we've been in Mark since COVID started, and we're just kind of chugging right along, and so Mark chapter 12 is where we are today. And uh, the interesting thing about this morning is, uh, when you go through different sections of Scripture, is you come across topics that you hadn't planned on speaking on. And so uh, this morning is kind of one of those situations, and what we find is that we're, we're going to see Jesus in some disputable matters. There's some disputable matters that are coming up. Now, arguably... One of the most difficult years of marriage is the first year. And the reason is, is because you didn't realize there's going to be so many disputable matters that arise in that first year. Am I right? Like, whose job is it to load the dishes? Well, whose job is it to unload the dishes? And should you or should you not pre-wash the dishes? Okay, now that's a, not that that's a hot topic at our house, but, you know, I'm just throwing that out there. You know, when, when we first got married, there's all kinds of things that, that became disputable matters, things that we would argue over that just really didn't matter at all. I mean, they were just kind of small things. I can remember, uh, and I told my wife I was telling this story, I, I don't even remember what we were arguing about, okay? Because that's typically the way it goes, am I right? It's something that you just don't even, well, I don't even know why we were arguing. We were just arguing. And I, I was gonna, I was gonna put my foot down, you know, because that's what men do, right? I'm a, and I said, "Well, fine, I'll just sleep on the couch." And I stormed out of there like I knew what I was doing. And my sweet wife, she said, "Jeff, Jeff, come back in here." And I was like, "Finally, won an argument, you know, like finally." Twenty years later, still haven't won one. But I was like, "Finally, did it." And I walked back in there, and she goes, "You forgot your pillow," and she threw it at me. <laughs> I threw it back. I don't need it. You know, disputable matters. You know, they tell you that there's two things you should not bring up at the dinner table. Politics and religion. Disputable matters. Aren't you glad you're not me this morning getting to talk about these issues? I mean, if only Jesus had talked about them when he had some kind of way to navigate these waters. Well, he did. So we are in uh, Mark chapter 12, and these two issues come up. And the reason we call it disputable matters is because of verse 28. Verse 28, and one of the scribes came up and heard them, there's the word, disputing with one another. Jesus is caught in a disputable matter. So let me pray for us, and let's jump into God's word. Gracious Lord, we come to you. What a wonderful morning to sing of your holiness, your love, your greatness, your power, and God, to know that there is power in a resurrection, that there is life after death, to know that you, by your grace and your mercy, have given us life that we do not deserve because you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be in our place. Father, we thank you for the beautiful testimony of baptism this morning in the lives of so many young people that we can see that there is a dying to self and a living new with Jesus Christ. Lord, guide our conversation this morning. Guide our topic. Father, help us to be unified as the body of Christ because we are under you. In Christ's name, amen. Now, the first thing I want you to see is Jesus disputed kingdom-minded politics. My goal is not to offend you, and if I do, come back next week. So let's read, starting in verse 13. Should be there on the screen. 
And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. You see, there's two people, two groups of people coming to Jesus, the Pharisees and the Herodians. And they're coming to him, and they've teamed up to come to Jesus with a political controversy. Now, these two people typically didn't get along. I mean, you had the Pharisees, they're members of the Jewish party. They are what you would say conservatives when it comes to the moral law. They, they follow it to a T. I mean, they're, they're tithing out of their spice rack. I mean, that's how much they're following the law, but their hearts were far from God, as we know when, he, when uh, Jesus says that they're like whitewashed tombs. They're far from God. But they're teaming up with these Herodians, this Jewish political party. And they were more they were more, you know, liberal in their interpretation of the Mosaic law. And so they were both teaming up because they both agreed on one thing, that Jesus was in the way. Jesus was in the way. The Pharisees hated Jesus because he was messing with their religious agenda. And the Herodians, well, they hated Jesus because he was threatening their political advantage. For them, they wanted to come and they wanted to trap him. And Luke chapter 20, verse 20 also says this, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something, he said, so to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So here's what's happening. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about this. Jesus has done his triumphal entry into, into Jerusalem, you know, and they're waving palm branches and they're celebrating who Jesus is and they're all excited. And Jesus walks in that night and he looks at the temple, looks at things and then leaves. The next morning on his way back to the temple, he sees a fig tree that's not bearing fruit. So he curses the fig tree, which a precursor to what he's about to do at the temple, which he cleanses the temple. He flips over tables, he makes a, a whip and he drives people out. Then the next day he comes back to the temple after he's utterly destroyed all the things that they're doing, and he begins to teach in parables. And while he's teaching in parables, these two political teams are teaming up, and they're saying, okay, we've got to get this guy. We've got to trap him. We've got to do something because we want to hand him over. So we either, we either need to get the crowds against him or we need to get the Romans against him. We don't care who it is as long as somebody's against this guy because if we get somebody against this guy, we can take him out. That's kind of a backstory of what's going on. So it says that they tried to trap him. This word trap in the Greek occurs here, and it means to trap like you're hunting a prey. So when it says that they sent spies to Jesus, they're literally on the hunt. They're looking for a way to destroy Jesus. Verse 14 says this, And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, they're saying this to kind of butter him up, right? They're trying to make him feel better. Spurgeon said this. He said, you only butter something up that you want to devour. And so he's, they're buttering him up like a roll. Like, we're going to butter him up, and we're going to devour him. And so they're kind of saying these things. And he says this, and they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Here's the trap. Jesus, we want you to pick a side. 
We want you to pick a political side. We want to know how to identify you from here on out. We want you to pick a side because then we've got you trapped. Jesus, pick a side and we'll define you by your decision on this disputable matter. Now, I'm not trying to get anybody's business, right? And I'm not trying to be political this morning. I just got stuck with this section of scripture, okay? But let me just say, is it possible that this same thing happens today where people try to get you to pick a side so that they can define you by that one choice that's a disputable matter? Yeah. Let me trap you. So, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Kent Hughes has a great quote when it comes to this. And Kent says this, the statement by our Lord is not only astounding the instant it was uttered, but is even today universally acclaimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. Jesus doesn't pick a side, but he answers in a way that shows honor to God. He says, bring me a denarius. Now, I don't know if this is exactly what the denarius would look like, but I kind of took a picture off Google, so it's got to be true, right? He says, bring me a denarius. And what, what does it look like? What inscription is on it? And on one side is the head of Tiberius Caesar with an inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So basically what that means is, here's the face of the son of God. You flip it over on the other side, and the reverse side had an image of Tiberius' mother, Livia, with the words Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest. So what's interesting is Jesus doesn't have one of these coins, you know, but he asked for someone to bring him one of these coins, and this was the tax. This would have been a day's wage that they had to pay once a year, and so this is the tax they're asking about. Should we pay this day's wage to the Roman government, the oppressors, the ones who are overruling us? Should we do this? And he says, well, what does it say on it? And so now Jesus is holding this image that says the Son of God on one side and the high priest on the other. Now, we know this from Scripture, Matthew 16, 15. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Hebrews tells us this, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So here's what's happening. Jesus holds in his hand the symbol of idolatry and the symbol of blasphemy, yet he acknowledges the legitimacy of human government. This is remarkable. You actually have the Son of God, the high priest, the great high priest, holding in his hand this image that is blasphemous. And he says, whose is it? We'll give him what's his. Give him what's his. If he wants to put his name on it, if he wants to stamp his name on it, then that's his. He's no anarchist. He's not creating some giant revolt and mob. He's not creating some march or hashtag. No. He's simply acknowledging the fact that there are governments. He acknowledges that honor is to be shown in disputable matters. Jesus is teaching us in this one moment that when it comes to disputable matters of politics, believers don't choose sides. They choose to honor God first and honor the government second. In this, in this one statement, Jesus is telling us, look, if you want to follow the kingdom of God, 
then it's not a matter of getting trapped in the one side or the next. It's a matter of do you honor God and do you honor the government? Do you render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's? So this is what scripture teaches us. Paul would say this in Romans chapter 13, 1 through 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. The reason I say that we submit and honor God first over government is because exactly what happens in Acts chapter 5, when Peter is told not to preach the gospel anymore by the ruling authorities, and this is his response. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. There is this understanding that all authority is from God. This is what Romans teaches. This is what Paul teaches in Romans. This is how the apostles began to live out the first years of Christianity, where Christianity was was against the law. And they're under an emperor, Nero, who was taking Christians and throwing them into, into the Colosseum and having wild animals and wild beasts rip them apart. He's taking other Christians and he's putting them on poles and he's lighting them on fire so that they can light the streets at night. I mean, this is serious stuff. Hey, Jesus, we want you to pick a side. We want you to pick a side. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing to the, in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This is remarkable because because Paul is telling us that we should pray for all people because it is God's will that all people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, this is difficult, but we should be offering up prayers for politicians more than hateful posts on social media about politicians. I mean, really, if we're going to be a light in a dark world, and let me tell you, I, I was talking or heard from a, a missionary friend of mine that's, he works with college students in Canada, and he's working with these college students, and he's trying to witness to them, and they're watching all the political upheaval that's happening, and they said, is that really how Christians act? We should be praying. We should be praying in times like this. We should desire for all people to come to Jesus, especially those we don't agree with. John Piper says it this way, if you don't want the people you disagree with to go to heaven, you're probably not a Christian. There's something far greater than choosing sides here, and Jesus is telling us it's to honor God with our lives. It's to get a kingdom-minded mindset when we think about things that matter disputable matters. Peter also gets in on this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor 
How many people? Everyone. Love, the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is God's word to his people. And he says, for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, be a witness of his gospel through how you submit to authority, living as servants of God in submission to governing authorities. He said, as we, as we live out our witness, let's live it out in a way that people see that we honor everyone, that we really do live as if we fear God, we respect God. He is completely in control of our lives. We have submitted our lives to him. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It is the will of God for us to do good so that there is something recognizably different about how we show honor to God and others. Church, let me tell you, there should be something recognizably different about Christians during political disputable matters. There should be something so different, so unrecognizable to the rest of the world that we handle things with such honor and love and respect. We render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And to God, what is God's? Honor is to be shown by treating people with human dignity, justice, fairness. You see, we don't have to agree with people politically, but we do have to honor them as a person. And the reason is because they're made in the image of God. They're made in the image of God. Jesus said to them, render the things that are Caesar's to Caesar and things that are God that are God's. Jesus explains that if the coin has Caesar's image on it, then it belongs to him. So give him what is rightfully his. So if, so what has God's image on it? We know that when God created in Genesis, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Every single person, whether you agree with them or disagree with them on disputable matters, was made in the image of God and deserved to be honored as such. C.S. Lewis said this, there are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. The people you and I see every day, even ones of whom you give little regard, are ones that are going to live forever either under salvation or under judgment. For the Lord's sake. You see, God's image is stamped on every single one of us. So we must give to God what is rightfully his our entire life. We must not allow ourselves to be trapped in a way that brings disunity to the body. Jesus knew what was most important. Church, do we know what's most important? Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Listen, disputable matters should not cause disunity in the church because we are united in Jesus Christ. That should got an amen, but you guys are all scared. You're all scared because I'm talking about politics. I'm more scared than you are right now, okay? I see your faces. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Christians are people who show honor to others because they see their value. They are made in the image of God. The second disputable matter comes up next. There's another group coming after Jesus. Jesus disputed kingdom-minded theology. There's two things you don't bring up at the dinner table, but I'm bringing them both up today. Welcome to the family politics, and religion. The Sadducees, you see, they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Let's see this. And the Sadducees came to him 
who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, so here's, let me explain that. Because some of you are like, that's not, that's not good. That's not what's happening. Mm. We don't practice that today in America. Not at all. And if you do, that's weird. Okay, so... This is what happened so, so that there would be a namesake, so that there would be an offspring for that, that man, that brother. The brother would take on and make sure there was an offspring. Okay, so they come up with this question. There are seven brothers that first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, and leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. So they come up with this crazy question, this crazy theological question. And this question is like a question that I'm sure you've had uh, in your mind. Did Adam have a belly button? That's a great theological question. That's kind of what they're doing here. They don't even believe in the resurrection, but yet they're asking a question about the resurrection. So let's keep reading these Sadducees. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? I love that. Jesus just goes, yeah, your theology's wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the books of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. He totally corrects them, these Sadducees, on their theology. And their theology was completely wrong. They were a small sect of priestly families, wealthy Jews, significant political temple influences, and their family's pedigree and their deep purses dominated the Sanhedrin. So they actually got to make laws and run things because they were the rich people. They did not believe in angels and demons, however. They were not looking for the Messiah King from David's line. They, were, they did not believe in immortality of the soul. They did not believe in the future bodily resurrection. And the historian Josephus says, the doctrine of the Sadducees is this, souls die with bodies. And Jesus says, you are quite wrong. You are quite wrong. Have you not read that God says, I am? am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus said to them, this is not the reason you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when we rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Let me kind of explain this a little bit because my wife said this is her least favorite verse in the Bible because she loves me so much. Um, oh, Okay, nope. Jesus gives us a glimpse into eternity. He speaks of our earthly marriage relationship becoming the ultimate purpose that it was intended for. Our marriages are a glimpse of an ultimate reality. The most intimate relationship we can ever fathom here is just a glimpse of what reality will be in heaven. That we are the bride of Christ and we will one day be reunited with our groom, Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, you're not going to be disappointed. You're not. And if you think you are, your theology's wrong. <laughs> That's what Jesus says. I didn't say it. 
He says, I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not, I was their God, but I am their God. There is life after death. There is a resurrection. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 9. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we, have, no, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for us this very good thing, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee so that we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. This is what Scripture tells us, that there is life after death, that there is a place that's being prepared for us, that the Spirit has been given to us as a down payment so that we know that there is a resurrection life, that we will live and we will live with our, our beloved Jesus Christ for all of eternity. And if we're away from the body, we are at home with the Lord. So, Second Corinthians verse 10, the next verse says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in this body, whether good or evil. Can I take us back to the fact that we are, we are supposed to live in light of eternity in this people matters, and how we treat others really does matter? That if we want to live out the will of God, that we really do want to see all people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we live in an example that way for the Lord's sake so that some will be saved. That we don't, we don't take a side because we, because we pick one or the other, but we say we want to honor God. What we do right now, how we treat others, the things we say and the faith we profess has eternal consequences. Our goal must be to please God. At church this afternoon at 2 o'clock, I get to preach a funeral for a beloved man that was in our church, Bud Cameron. Let me tell you, Bud's at home. Bud's reality is now eternity. He is reunited with his wife. But more than that, he's reunited as the bride of Christ with Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing. So we rejoice in the life that Bud lived because... All week long, I've gotten emails and text messages about things that Bud did, how he witnessed to people, how he prayed for people, how he longed for people to come into the kingdom. And today, I'm going to share this verse at his funeral. I know not all of you can be there, but I want you to hear this verse, Revelations 14, 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed. Bud's blessed. Blessed indeed says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Church, I want you to understand that we are saved by grace. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It is a gift of God. But as we live out our lives here to honor God and to love others, those deeds are eternal. And the way that we witness to people, 
has eternal consequences. People can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ when we put aside disputable matters and we choose to love people first. It's the call of the church. Jesus disputed disputable matters. And so now I get to get to the good one. We're past that, okay? Jesus disputed kingdom-minded essentials. The kingdom-minded essentials, let's keep reading verse 28. These will not seem familiar to many of us. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Keep reading verse 32. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that there is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all of your heart and with all of your understanding, and with all of your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They didn't want to dispute with Jesus after that one. They just left it. it basically, the scribe comes up and he wants to know what is the single most important commandment that God has given in this world. I want to know what, like, I see you're disputing. I see you're talking about all these things and you're dividing over all these things. But I just want to know what's the most important thing. So in today's context, it's like us running up to Jesus in the midst of all these disputable matters and asking, what's the most essential duty as a Christian? I just want to do what's right. If we're to ask ourselves today, what, what list would be there? Make a list of essentials in the Christian life. Where would love of God and others show up on that list? If we were to make a list today of what the essentials of Christianity are, where would love show up on that list for God and for others? Because a lot of times we'll say, you know, Bible study. You know, you need to be in God's Word. These, these are good things. You need to be in God's Word. You need to be uh, in as many Bible studies as you can. You need to learn God's Word. You need to love Him with all your understanding, right? Yeah, well, the first Christians, they didn't have a Bible. They didn't go home for parchment time, you know? Instead of Bible time or parchment time. But um, Okay, so Bible study. But let me ask you this. How, how good is Bible study? if you don't love God and love others? How good is it if you never take what God's word says and apply it into how you treat other people, even when you have disputable matters? What about prayer? Oh, prayer, that's an essential. Yeah, I would say it is because it's communion with God. That's how you commune with the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how you pray. You're in communion with the Trinity when you go to prayer. But what good is it if you pray, but if you don't love people? If you don't love people and pray for them and pray for their salvation. What about moral conformity? Yeah, we need to be, we need to be good. We need to stop doing the bad things. We need to do the right things, not the wrong things. We need, to, we need to have these disputable matters like, hey, like there's no gray areas, black and white. Let's do it, you know. What if you're following all the rules and yet you still don't love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? see, Jesus goes to the Shema. This is a 
very famous Jewish saying that they would read quite often in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. And we read it, actually, when we did our child dedications a few weeks ago. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. These are the things you should do. You should love the Lord your God and you should tell your kids all about them. That's why discipleship happens in the home. You should love God with all of your heart. Your affections, church, should be driven towards Jesus Christ first. You should love the Lord your God with all of your soul, with all of your person. You know, in the letters that, that uh, are written in Revelation to the churches, the, the letter to Laodicea is, I know your works, I know your deeds, I know your heart. I know that you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. Love God with all of your soul, love God with all of your mind and intellect. Yes, we should study. We should learn more and more about God because we'll never figure out God because if we did, he wouldn't be God. And you're not always going to get the right answers and sometimes your theology is going to be wrong and when you get to heaven, God's going to be like, you were wrong. No, oh, I was wrong. And love the Lord your God with all of your strength, with all of your might. Do not grow weary in doing good. Love God and love your neighbor. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You see, how we love God will determine how we love our neighbor. How we love God will determine how we love our neighbor. When we love our neighbor as ourself, we give evidence that we have loved God with all we have. Even when we love those we disagree with. Because a lot of times your neighbor is the one you disagree with. When Jesus talks about a neighbor, you know who he, who he uses? A Samaritan. The one that the Jews couldn't stand. The good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? Tim Keller says this, When Jesus says all the laws boil down to love God and neighbor, he is saying that we have not fulfilled a law by simply avoiding what the law prohibits. But we must also do and be what the law has, is really after, namely, love. You see, we're not really following God unless we're doing what the commandment says. We can avoid a lot of things. We can be moral in a lot of areas. But if we're, really not, if we're not really loving God and loving our neighbor, then we're really not following God's, God's law. You see, only by loving our God greatly are we able to love others genuinely. This means that if we don't love others genuinely, then we probably don't love God greatly. And I'll just go back to the disputable matters. If you're disagreeing with somebody over a disputable matter and you can't stand that person or you hold hate in your heart towards that person because you don't agree with them, it's more of a reflection of your love for God than you think it's a reflection of your love of them. Paul says in Ephesians 4, one through three. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He says, Look, I, for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling 
Know what's important. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Don't get caught up in a trap. A great love for God leads to a life of love, humility, gentleness, patience, and love. John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 1 John 4, 20 through 21, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You must also love your brother even if you don't agree. Church, we should never be disunified because of our views on certain matters. We should be united in Christ, united in love. And the scribe said to him, you're right. You're right, teacher. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Oh, you're not far. See, the scribe, he agreed with Jesus. The loving God and loving neighbor is more important than all the other laws and sacrifices. But agreeing with Jesus isn't the same as submitting to Jesus. Today, I've said a lot of things, and you may not agree with me. But I ask you, do you agree with Jesus? That the most important essential in your life right now is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself? Do you, do you agree with Jesus? Let me tell you, you can agree with Jesus and not submit to Jesus. And you can be near the kingdom and not in the kingdom. Just being near the kingdom is not the same as being in the kingdom. This morning, you got to see a beautiful picture of resurrection life. And it begins now. Everyone is created in God's image and sin has marred that image. It's destroyed that image. And sometimes it's hard to see that in other people. Sometimes it's hard to see that in yourself. But there's a God who loves you deeply who sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, that you can have life and have it everlasting. He sent his son so he could wash away the sin and the grime that has connected itself to you so that you can have eternal life. And so this morning I ask you, do you agree with Jesus? But more importantly, will you submit to the lordship and the authority of Jesus in your life? This is a time of response, a time of prayer, a time of singing, a time of worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, you give it to us as a light to our path. Lord, that we would seek you in it, that we would find you, that we would cling to you when disputable matters arise. Lord, that we would fight for unity in the church, that we would long to be those who, for your sake, are a witness to the world so that they would become followers of you. For your sake, Lord, help us to honor, help us to show honor, help us to see the image of God in everyone. Father, if there's someone here today who doesn't know you, I pray right now that by the power of your spirit, you convict them, that they would bow their knee to you today. They would surrender their life to you, that they wouldn't just be near the kingdom today, they would be in the kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Will you stand? Will you respond? Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. 
please subscribe to hear new sermons each week.